Welcome to season three of Office Hours with Dr. DeVoe. We have had so many amazing shows over the last two years, and we are really looking forward to the season ahead. The academic year is here, and U.S. higher education is going through, as they say, some things. (laughs) Well, between closures and mergers, institutions having to wrap our heads around the strategies that we need to deploy in order to have effective holistic admissions in light of the SCOTUS ruling outlawing affirmative action. And of course, we cannot forget about our faculty, our students, and how are we doing right by the institution itself and keeping to build the public trust in the promise that is higher education? For our new listeners, well, welcome. We hope that you stick with us and that you share and give us your feedback. We love having you. For our returning listeners, You'll see something new after two great seasons on the Fireside platform, some analysis and our of our audience and our reach. And frankly, I need some professional support. Office Hours has joined with Pod 617 and our fantastic producer out of Pod 617, the master David Yaz. He is a wonderful friend, lover of podcasts, and an accomplished producer. He will be making sure that Office Hour sounds fantastic in your earbuds, and more features will be added this year. But for now, just follow, download, share, and rate the show's rating and sharing truly helps. So please, 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 please do that. Thank you. Before premiering any new contact content, Before premiering any new content, I wanted to be sure that you caught our final episode of season two. My guests were Eric Booth, the former vice president at Iowa Wesleyan University, and Dr. Laura Linden, the former vice president of student affairs at Holy Names in Oakland, California. They both closed their campuses in May, and we had a really great chat about the impact of the closure, what they learned their kind of reflections. And I want to thank both Eric and Laura for their time, especially hot on the heels of such a traumatic event. So with the current state of closures and mergers in higher education, I really wanted to make sure that this show got bumped up again and that you had some thoughts on, uh, you have an opportunity to hear some thoughts on the impact of such an event. New shows will be hitting your podcast feed twice a month. And the first one will be coming on September 27th, when we will be bringing in one of our favorite legal experts to weigh in on the SCOTUS decision. Now that some dust has settled and campuses are starting to develop their holistic admission practices, what does this all look like? What are some ramifications of this? What are some of the things we want to be looking towards for the future? And we're going to have some good chats. We always have a good conversation with these experts. And so it'll be a a good conversation. Thank you again for being a listener. And if you want more of Dr. Lord of O content, uh, don't forget to subscribe to my weekly newsletter, What's Up in the Academy on the Substack platform and follow me on social media. All links for subscribing and following are in the link tree in the show notes. So that's it for now. I look forward to your thoughts on this show and see you, whatever that might mean in the podcast world on September 27th for our next new episode for season three. Have a great opening of the academic year, everybody.
Welcome, everybody, to Office Hours with Dr. DeVoe. You are listening to the next generation of professional development in higher education. We are broadcasting and recording live right here on the Fireside platform. This is the final episode of season two. Thank you all for being here. And it's a really important topic. We are talking about the vice presidential view of college closure. My guests today are Laura Linden and Eric Booth. And I'm going to ask them to introduce themselves, and then we're going to get into some questions. I don't want to get into a very long introduction because I have a lot to talk about with these two wonderful people. We are part of an exclusive organization, otherwise known as a college closure survivor group. And so today we're going to talk about what it's like to close a campus and all of the ins and outs of that. So I want to turn things over first to Laura. Laura, tell us a little bit about yourself. Tell us about where you were most recently at. And then, Eric, we're going to go to you. Sure. Thank you. Thank you, Laura. Really a pleasure to be here today. I appreciate you having us here and having the opportunity to talk about this experience. My name is Laura Linden. I was most recently the Vice President of Student Affairs at Holy Names University in Oakland, California, which closed as of May 15th of 2023. So just a short time ago, I've been working in higher ed for since I graduated from college. So about 35 years, I was at Harvard University and then Brandeis University and then at Holy Names for close to 19. It would have been 19 years this summer had the institution not closed. And, so I'll um, leave it short and then turn it to Eric. Eric, tell us about yourself. Oh, thank you very much, Dr. Laura. My name is Eric Booth. I was most recently the Vice President for Student Development at Iowa Wesleyan University in Mount Pleasant, Iowa. I just wrapped up my 22nd year working in student affairs. Same as as Dr. Linden, I basically jumped right in right after my undergraduate career and have been working primarily in housing ever since until I'd stepped into the Vice Presidency role at Iowa Wesleyan. We unfortunately closed on May 30th of just 2023, so... Definitely appreciate you having me on and, and being able to share my experience. And for those who don't know, I closed Mount Ida College in May of 2018. It, it closed on May 18th. My birthday is May 17th. And so it literally, oh when they were making the announcement, I said, for the love of God, please do not let it be on my birthday. <laughs> like if there could be anything else. And I said during the short introduction, we're part of a very kind of exclusive club of people who got to experience this good, bad, or indifferent. And and one of the things that I try to do when I see a campus is closing, I try to reach out to the vice president of student affairs or the dean of students there. And that's how I met with both of you. And actually, Laura, we have a, a connection in common, Sheila Murphy, who mm -hmm. also connected with me and said, I, I know Laura Linden, I, I hope you're going to try to get, can you try to get in touch with her? And I think I, I think I said, I, I honestly really did like the day prior, I, I tapped yep. you, I, yep. I, I slipped into your DMs on LinkedIn <laughs> and that sort of thing. And, it, and it's not the most pleasant connection, but I do it because we are part of an organization of, of people within the student affairs practice that have a very unique experience mm -hmm. and it's very lonely and it's very weird. And we'll can kind of get into some of that as the show goes along. 
But I want to start with something where we go into this work and we become connected to an institution. And Laura and Eric, you were both at places for quite some time. This You were at this last institution for quite some time. So there was something there that was special. There was something there that kept you there. I'd like to hear from both of you about, tell us about Holy Name, tell us about Iowa Wesleyan and the students and the culture there and why it was special to you. And why don't I start with Eric and then go to Laura? Yeah, absolutely. I think overall what made Iowa Wesleyan special for me, it was, it was the area where I grew up originally from Southeast Iowa. So I grew up 30 minutes from the campus and I've worked at different institutions of higher ed, but there was always a desire to come back home and be closer to family. And Iowa Wesleyan was the campus that when you went to a college basketball game as a kid to go see college basketball, that was the campus I was going to and baseball games. And so it was really a special place for me, even before I was able to work there. And it really was just reinforced when I got there on campus to be a staff member. I mean, being on a small campus in a rural Midwestern part of the part of the state, people from surrounding counties and communities and school districts. And it's just a very family type atmosphere. And that really resonated on the campus as well. Even though our students who weren't from there, they really just kind of were embraced as part of the, the Iowa Wesleyan family and in turn the Mount Pleasant community family, which is, is very a big thing on small college campuses. I've worked on a few small college campuses and they don't always have that connection. Students are there and they kind of do their thing and they either they're an athlete or they're there for a music program and then they kind of disconnect. But Iowa Wesleyan just had this gift of keeping their students connected after graduation or even for students who wouldn't complete their studies there and transfer somewhere else would still stay connected to the university. And I think that just kind of was one of the things that made it a very special place is that culture of family and connectedness and when you only have 700, 750 students, everybody knows everybody and everybody stays connected and social media has made that so much easier nowadays for our students that you really never really lose those connections. And even in the situation that we've faced recently with the closure, students have still stayed connected to me via social media. Students that had my contact information, phone number, have all still stayed connected to me. The, I think the, the biggest thing that I would say embraces that mentality is that I had a student who volunteered to write a recommendation for me as part of a job search. He came up after the announcement and said, you need a hug. And if you need a job recommendation, I'll be happy to write one for you. And just those types of moments you don't get everywhere on every campus. And so I think that's one of the things that made our, our campus special, but, and still a student that I keep in touch with today because he's just a phenomenal, phenomenal person. So those are the types of things that I think make some campuses very special. And it's unfortunate when they close because you kind of lose some of that, but it's never dead. It, it's still there. Yeah, it lives on in it and it lives on in a very special way. I, I will tell you that five years after Mount Ida closed, we still have these kind of moments and I still see students in special environments. I just officiated a wedding for a former student. And you find your way to kind of continue in their lives and they continue in your life. Laura, tell us about Tell us about Holy Yeah, it's jumping off of Eric using the term family, which I know is a, a common descriptor of very small colleges, but that was a similar idea at Holy Name. So I got a job there in 2004 because we had just moved to California thinking I would be there for two years or three years. And here I am, 19 years later, a very small 
college in the Oakland Hills, very diverse. 75% of the students were BIPOC students and very connected to the Oakland community. So that was a really important part. And then the other really important part of the culture was the institution was founded by this incredibly wonderful sort of radical order of women religious, the Sisters of the Holy Names. And they brought just a real spirit of family and social justice and community and hospitality to the to the campus. So everybody knew everybody, just a real best staff I've ever worked with. Very, everyone really felt very connected. And so I just, and, and the other thing, which I think was probably true, is true at many, for many people at small colleges is you just, what kept me there is you have so much opportunity because there's just constant evolution. And so I was, I was there for 19 years, but I had probably seven different positions culminating in the vice presidency. And so I had the opportunity to grow and learn and and take on new challenges and responsibilities and continue to improve and, and evolve the college. So that's a big piece of what kept me there. I see Eric nodding. Did you have a similar experience? Were you able to kind of find your way up the rank there in ways that allowed you to grow and really embed yourself in the campus? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I started there as the director of housing it's residence life is my background and then transitioned to assistant dean and then dean of students vp role the dean of students vp role kind of meshed into one role in the end so yeah it was kind of one of those things where on a small campus you get those opportunities to kind of dive into different areas and you really get more plugged in than some of the state school large school people that they're really kind of siloed into their own area or on a small school you're wearing 40 hats and a lot of those hats connect with areas outside of your own so it's one of those things that i was say to people who are looking to go into student affairs, the great thing about working at a small campus is you're going to get a lot of experience in a lot of different areas as you go along. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Laura, remind me, were you a res lifer at some point too, or am I making that up in my head? I was not actually. I came up through the academic advising side. So my background prior to Holy Names had been mostly academic advising. Great. And it's when we look at how our institutions are similar. One of the things about Mount Ida was that it was, I think at the time of our closure, over 60% of our students were first generation. Uh, It was a small campus that provided high touch is the wrong term because I think any, any small campus is high touch because you have different types of relationships with people. Like I would eat in the dining, we didn't have a faculty staff dining room on our campus. We all ate in the same dining room. So when you were eating, people would laugh because I would start a meal with somebody and then I would in I would go on to eat with someone for my my dessert or for my snack or for whatever. I'd literally kind of get up like, okay, I'll see you in a minute. I'm gonna go to that person. And I did that in that that meal I could have eaten with one of my staff members, a student and a faculty member all at the same time. And it was a very different environment. You didn't see that when I worked at, say, a Boston University where there were tens of thousands of students and the faculty never ate in the dining hall. They literally had a faculty meals program to encourage faculty to eat in the dining hall. And it was a, a very small program for a campus that size. And what I hear from both of you is this idea of like having a small campus was important to you and your development at the time. And Laura said this, and I echo this in terms of my staff. I I will never have a better staff than the staff I had when we closed Mount Ida. They were just 
phenomenal and they ruined for it for me for the rest of my life because I just don't know if I could ever curate a group of humans that was the same as that crew. Eric, as you think about your staff right now, I think when 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 the news came down of Maunita's closure and I sat in my president's office and he said, we're closing, we're selling the land to University of Massachusetts Amherst and we're closing effective after graduation. The first thing I thought of was my staff and all of the people who were part of my team. And I remember this person just bought a house and this person's expecting their first baby and this person just got married. All these things were going through my head. And then I thought of the students. And then I thought of myself because me and my family lived on campus. So I lost my job. I lost my identity. I lost my home all in one fell swoop. Tell me about what it felt like for you when you found out and how, what was your response to the news in the initial moments of that, Eric? Yeah, I had, I had a very similar experience in you. Like both of you, I had phenomenal staff that I was just spoiled with, with a good crew. And so that was the first thought is what about my staff? I had just brought on two new people in this, that previous academic year, one of which came, worked with me at a school in Texas prior to, and I convinced to come down and take our director of housing role. And so I felt a lot of responsibility for, for that specifically, but also for the others and Two of them luckily were local and from the area. And so the position was convenient for them because they were from that area and they were looking to stay in that area. But some of the others who were true student affairs professionals wanted to, had to branch out because there wasn't any other option because we were the only university within a certain 60, 80 mile radius. So a lot of my focus was what, how can I support my staff, my student, and then Thirdly, myself, because I was also one of those people who I was living in campus-owned housing off campus, but university-owned. And so once it sank in as, oh, I don't have a place to live. I no longer have a job. I got people to take care of and I don't have a place to live. What do I do? And so I really had to compartmentalize a little bit of how I prioritized. And I chose to prioritize staff and students before myself and, and then focused on myself once I felt like those other two were in a good spot. Yep. Very similar. I, I, I turned to my husband and I said, okay, I need you to start to figure this out. And then one of the things that happened was I was friends with a, a, a more of acquaintances, but a very, now we're friends, a person who was a realtor who reached out to me and he said, I know you live on campus. Do you need somewhere to live? And I said, I do. And I, I said, I can't afford to buy anything right now. No one's going to, no one's going to give me a mortgage. I just, I just closed a college and they, it's all over the front page of the Boston Globe. Nobody's going to give me a mortgage, right? And he's like, I said, I, I, this is my budget. I need to rent and it needs to be in this location. So my kids just is not disrupted in terms of her. She was going into middle school at the time. And he goes, I, I, I will work on this. And thankfully there were other people like that, like, some of the other people who I had known at the at the college, this moving company that we had hired many times, like move departments and take things out and put things in storage over the course of a summer when we're fixing a building. And the moving company called me and he's like, when can I be at your place? We will we will cover we will make sure that we give you a massive discount. I'm like, thank you. Like, I mean, 
it was it made me feel better that I was a good client, I guess, in those times. But you do need to compartmentalize. And after it was all over, there was there was therapy. There was good trauma informed therapy because it is a trauma to go through this. Laura, tell me about and tell the listener about when you found out and what was your response. Yeah, so you and I talked about this a little bit, Laura, when we met that first time that we had a, I think for you and I'm not sure, Eric's situation where you had a pretty tight, fast turnaround for from announcement to actual closure. And yeah, we had, we announced in December for closure in May 15th. So and, and anyone working at a small college these days has it on their radar, right? That this small tuition dependent, that this could happen. And we were certainly in merge of conversations. And so it was sort of brewing in the background, but the announcement was in May, in December. So we had a sort of longer drawn out experience of actually having to wind down and reduce staff significantly. So that was one of the really painful parts was needing to get several phases of of layoffs. So went eventually had to lay off 60% of my team. So at the time of closure, I was down to six staff members having been at 23 or something before that. So, so that was thinking about the team and wanting them to find good positions. But one of the things about working at a place like Holy Names or, or Mount Ida or Ohio Wesleyan is that you, people are really dedicated and they wanted to stay and they wanted to see it through and they wanted to help students till the end, but we couldn't do that. And there were people who wanted to find new jobs, but also felt torn, like, I want to be here. And so, so it was sort of this sort of drawn out, painful process of knowing it was coming. But then somehow in the last three weeks, it had always seemed, we knew it was coming. It seemed far away. And then all of a sudden, oh, it's three weeks from now. And that's or four weeks from now or two days from now. And so it was, I don't envy the fast turnaround that you had, but in a way, I think we had talked about this. You had your yeah. entire team to do the closeout. And, and, and that and was, we, I mean, yeah. I, I think, and I'm sorry to interrupt. The, the, no, no. The, re, the reality about Mount Ida's closures, we had six weeks. We right. made the announcement in, in April and we had six weeks. And I, I always, they always say it takes six weeks to change a habit, you know, whether mm-hmm. it be flossing or taking carbs out of your diet or some interesting <laughs> like that. It should not take six weeks to close a college, but right. yeah. we we did benefit from the fact that everybody was there and that mm-hmm. kind of slow rolled close can have, I think, a different trauma on the student and a different mm-hmm. impact on the student. Yes. Whereas ours, everyone was together. Everyone had this shared experience of the closure. They... And it was this very tight, tight, tight turnaround. And I, to this yeah. day, the Herculean lift mm-hmm. that the provost and others did to get these students into another, mm-hmm. what I like to call a destination campus, it, it blows my mind that it was even able to be done. And and that even goes, I think, Eric, you and I had a communication about like some of the mechanics of closure, like what about mm-hmm. this form and how do you did how did you do this and that sort of thing? And there was there was certain mechanics of it. No one had told us what to do. We literally just said, uh, this seems like the best course of action. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so when you close and that mechanics of closure, 
a friend of mine who was at one of the campuses that actually we were sending students to, she goes, what are you going to do with, with all of these in reports and this, and I said, said, I'm trashing them. Like I'm literally talk about trauma when you're actually looking at your old, your Cleary stats from the last 10 years and you know how much, how difficult that is to get done. And now you're like, this means nothing. I'm just mm-hmm. putting it in the shredder or I'm putting it in the storage box to go to the to the facility that's going to hold our stuff for X amount of time. But then there were those things like every student needs a dean's letter that said they were in mm-hmm. good standing or if they weren't, why? Every student athlete, if they wanted to participate, they needed confirmation from the athletic director in, in compliance with the NCAA. Mm-hmm. Where there were so many of these little details and my team just came together and got it done. And I can't even imagine, Laura, for you and Eric, I'd like to hear from you too, is that the mechanics of closure and how it kind of rested on your shoulders while at the same time, you're trying to advocate and be there for the students. Like that's part of the reason that I think the vice president or the dean of students is such a an under kind of understood role in closure because a lot of times they're looking at the CFO or at the president or at the enrollment vice president, but they're not necessarily looking at at the VPSA or the dean of students because and they, they don't really understand the impact of this on our on who we are in terms of being the chief student advocate. Eric, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah. I agree. Our our positions and our roles are so dynamic that there's so many different pieces and even student affairs on different campuses encompass different departments and different areas. So it really is one of those pieces where looking at what each individual department area needed was very different. I think that one of the areas that I was struggling most with was health records, counseling records, and transfer of client care for counseling and our, our legal obligations, which are Something you don't really think about is me not having a counseling background, but supervising the counseling center. And so, and then an assumption that, well, whoever takes our transcript is going to take all of our records. And we quickly learned that that was not going to happen. And they were only nope. taking our transcripts. And so Correct. finding finding what's the best way to keep those records active for students. And then easy for somebody who has no idea on how our files work to find them in a file cabinet somewhere in a storage locker somewhere kind of thing. Right. So. Right. Those little things, I mean, I, I shared with a few people, it's like when you're in your master's programs, your doctoral programs, you talk about organizational leadership and operations, you never get a, like a tabletop exercise of how to close a university. Like, so no. you really have to think outside the box and rely on expertise of others and staff. And I'd even contacted the, the VPs at Finlandia and Presentation College who were both also closing this spring to see what they did. And I was very fortunate that the VP at Finlandia got back to me very quickly. And he's like, we don't have a counseling center, so we don't know what we're doing either. And so we were able to find a location for our records and things. But it's just those little pieces that you never think you have to worry about. And I give a lot of credit to my staff for taking the initiative to do some reach outs on my behalf because I was also working on other areas too, Title IX and those records. And just it felt like every time I thought I got a problem solved, another one came up. And yeah. you just keep solving and solving and solving until there's nothing left to solve for your time is done. Absolutely. Laura, in the terms of the mechanics, 
were there any challenges that you faced that you were like, no one told me how to do this and I'm literally making this up as I go along? Yeah, I think all of it really. <laughs> but actually talking with you was very helpful because you, you gave us some ideas about things like printing out letters for students in advance and things like that. Was And we did have some good advice from our WASC accreditation rep about how to manage some things. So there were some ways where we got some good support. But I think one of the challenges around the mechanics is it is, in essence, a business closing at a certain point, yeah. right? And so there's yeah. all of that stuff that needs to happen. And the decisions are driven by that. And people do tend to forget even that students are going to have needs beyond the closure, right? So how do you think about what's going to happen? And this happened a lot for us in the last couple of weeks when students would sort of come out of the woodwork, even though they've been getting communications all along, right? Then all of a sudden, oh, wait what do I do about this or how do I, and then there wasn't going to be folks there to help them after that. So I think that there was probably not enough consideration into just because the college closes doesn't mean there aren't students who still think of themselves as as students of this institution and are going to need support and help. So. Absolutely. It's a couple of things from a mechanic standpoint and something I, I always said to people it became super important, not only from our perspective of making sure the students knew where to get transcripts and even in the short term, our, our, our registrar's office was churning out official transcripts. Like every student got I think, five or six transcripts, like just handed to them. And then they just kept going. We, we brought the only thing I think we bought in the last days of the college was that paper that the transcripts had to go on. Right. But <clears throat> that being said, I turned to my staff and I said, we can't cancel, like, because here's the other thing, a lot of the end of year activities, because again, Mount Ida announced the closure so late in the game that we had already contracted everything from spring weekend to set the date for the varsity end of year banquet. I'm like, these things are, people say, what, you spent the money? I'm like, it was already spent. Like, it's not like canceling these things was going to keep the campus open and it had no bearing on the closure, right? And so we had, we had these events and the students all use them and the staff as a way to have some level of emotional closure and be able to say goodbye. And it, that is, I think, is also a, an important aspect of the mechanics. It was also interesting to me, at least at my institution, is that the students, which Mount Ida was never much of an activist campus. It really just wasn't. But all of a sudden, the seniors especially found a lot of agency and they decided to uninvite certain members of the senior administration and all of the trustees from commencement. And commencement then became completely student run. And as a person who has run commencements before, and, and I'm like, there, here's the form. So they came back and they asked me to be the speaker. They asked the provost to still be there and, and confer the degrees. But and a couple of other administrators who they felt were were helpful to them. But the president, the CFO and some others were not invited any longer. And I will tell you this is that the commencement that year was probably the best commencement I've ever been. And I've been to a lot. I've been to a lot of commencements, 30 some odd years of commencement. And 
when the senior class president stood up at the mic at the podium and was presiding over it, it was truly a phenomenal experience from a from a sense of this is who we are and this is why we're here. And these are the students who presented themselves to the world in a way that did not look like they were putting their tail between their legs and silking off because that's actually one of the things that that I get very angry about when I hear people talk about the closure of an institution and they there's almost this like look down their nose on the students that they were lesser than because they were at a small college and I think it it really makes me angry because these students have promise and these small campuses are so important to helping them find that agency and promise and this idea of like well small campuses don't have a role in higher education and I just like say you just you don't get it if you've never worked on a small campus that serves a certain population you just cannot get it am I am I just over am I being extra Laura Eric or do I have something to say here Eric go ahead no I I I completely agree with you as I think about how our semester wrapped up our financial situation was not strong for several years and so towards the end when it basically we made our, our our announcement March 28th so our timing we had a little bit more than you but not much and at that point, financially, we were paying last year's bills, this year's money. So a lot of the questions came up about how do we provide students closure when we can't afford to have these events that we normally have spring thing and our student award ceremony. And so we started a fundraising campaign through donors to try to support those end of year activities. And we were able to get support. The, the weird question came up on our campus, which I understand was we, there was also a possibility that staff and faculty wouldn't get their last month's pay and their PTO for personal time off for vacation pay. And so there was a lot of questions of why are we finishing up our athletic seasons, but we're not, we're running the risk of not paying our staff. Luckily, we were able to do both. We were able to finish our athletic seasons and our student activities and everybody got their final paychecks and their PTO. But it was really just our commitment to students and saying, we want to give them the best experience possible. And our board was very supportive of that. Athletics was always the, the big question of, we know athletically we can't afford to be traveling, but fundraisers and donors came to support those programs and say, no, we want to give the students a final experience that they're going to appreciate and be able to reflect on. So by the time when graduation came around, we were able to support all the events that we had traditionally done to give them as normal of an ending as possible, but also make sure that our graduation reflected just the the big need to have that closure. And we were fortunate that we didn't have a lot of blowback on administration from students because I, I personally, I don't even know how, how I would have dealt with that. I would have, I would have been heartbroken, but we tried to make it as much of a student focused closure as possible. So that way they can have their personal closure and then also their academic closure. And I think a lot of the students as, as they were looking at other options. And at that time, a lot of them had obviously made plans to transition to new universities. I did hear some of the students say that they were struggling a little bit more, a lot of our athletes more so to, to find new places. And, and some of that stigma of, well, you were at a place that didn't close down. 
why here? Why why now? Why us now? And those kind of questions. And so it's really hard to give student good direction on how to answer those questions. But but the good thing is they were a little bit better educated this time around when they were looking for universities than they were when they were 18. And especially with our first gen population and our student athletes being re-recruited, that it was kind of a different experience for them to have to do that again at this point of their academic career, but doing it with closure of their teams and their friends and their social groups. Right. Laura, I want to ask you a question that kind of Eric's statement reminded me of this experience at Mount Ida was regarding the transfer process for the students. And some institutions that came to campus, we had a hundred some odd institutions come to campus to like we had a transfer fair and they were colleges, not only in the, in the Massachusetts, New England area, but we had colleges from around the country come. And some of them were there in absolutely good faith. And it was very odd because I would go around with thank people for being there. And they would look at me like, I can't even believe this happened because we were one of the first schools to actually go through this. And they didn't know what to do with me. They were like, I was like a Martian. They were like, I don't know what to say. I'm like, I know you want to say, I'm sorry. Like if one more person says, I'm sorry, I'm just literally going to punch myself in the face because it's just, I'm tired of hearing, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. But then there were some campuses that they themselves were in a tough financial scenario and how they were arriving on campus and their approach. And I actually got a phone call from my athletic director who said, if you hear that the football coach bodily removed someone from campus who was here trying to recruit his players, this is true. <laughs> I said, okay, that's fine. <laughs> I don't get like, in all the things I have to deal with right now, I don't care. Did you see, what kind of actors did you see in that landscape? Or did you see it yourself? Did you hear from your students? How were they being recruited? And did you cross, did you kind of scratch your head and pull any aside and say, I would look at that school again with a critical eye? Laura, what are your thoughts on that? For some reason, I'm not hearing Laura. Eric, I'm going to turn it over to you and see if it might be a connection issue with, with Laura. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not hearing Laura either. I, I can share one thing that when you mentioned the football coach situation and we had so many news cameras on campus trying to interview students, which we were very open and public and said, you can do this in those kind of areas, but you can't come into our dining hall and start trying to interview them at the, at the dinner tables and things like that. But we did have some that tried. And so we had to tell them it's not appropriate and please step away. But with our transfer fair, very much like yours, a lot of institutions, and I'm very, very supportive of them coming to re-recruit our students because they needed new places to go. But there are, were some tactics that I think were a little bit ethically questionable. And a lot of it, I felt like it was the this hearing students here from other universities that that school's not that great and that school's going to close down. So you might want to come here because we're financially stable and things like that. Playing off that emotion of what just happened with our university to kind of further their opportunity to get these students and. That's not what you want to hear. We were, even with our teach-out schools, we were very diligent in identifying teach-out schools so that that way we could get them into situations that were similar to ours academically, athletically, whatever their situation may be. A lot of international students as well, because we had a very high international student population. And even some of the schools that were involved in that were saying, well, their teach-out schools are all in financial jeopardy as well. So 
it was just, it was disheartening. And I remember some of those schools and they were schools that when I was job searching, I was not interested in even looking at. No, I, I absolutely understand. And, and I heard the same thing from some of my staff when they were looking. I have no interest in going and looking at this school. There is not a chance in hell I'm going to end up going and working on that campus. I want to just check in with Laura. Laura, can you hear us? All right. I think there's that Laura, I'm going to, what I'm going to do is I'm going to remove Laura from the stage and hopefully she will come back in to the show and see what we can do from there. All right. And so Eric, I want to move on with you and see if we can find our way to this idea of some of the things that we see in the news right now in terms of what's happening and where we are with higher ed. We know that that Moody's has released a report that came up last week that indicates that more college closures will be happening. There was articles, I think it was today in the Philadelphia Inquirer, all about what's happening in Philadelphia and some of the, the movement of institutions down there. When I read this, I feel like there's these points that are consistently overlooked, especially as it has to do with that student experience. And when you look at the news, and we, we kind of talked about this earlier, but I think the news so much focuses on the finance and, and the what, what are the dead majors or what's not actually pulling people in. What do you think that the, the news media, as well as the people who are analyzing this, are missing in terms of the closure and and tell us what's going through your head when you read these other reports about other institutions do you actually like now that you've lived through it is there another kind of point of reference that you have that you say they are absolutely missing the point on a few of these salient issues yeah i do think as as we commonly read about the enrollment cliff and what to expect from college enrollments coming up in the next five to ten years a lot of it is obviously, as you said, focused on the financial stability of most institutions and institutions internally know that as well. That's why we focus so much on enrollment and recruitment and retention and making adjustments as necessary to not just get more students, but also accommodate the needs of the community because you can add all these majors, but if they're not the needs of the community, you're going to find that you're going to, you're coming up short in a little bit. And so as I'm reading these reports and these concerns about others that are in this situation where they may be at risk as well. I think about our role, especially in student affairs and how important retention is and creating a student experience that's outside the classroom that makes them appreciate the university because there's long-term benefit to that beyond graduation. The memories that they serve will also probably keep their connection to the universities and hopefully become active alumni and potentially donors down the road. And those are things that are going to help with that financial piece that you're, that you're losing out on. But I think that's one of those things we try to sell so much to students and parents during orientation when they're coming. It's there's such a great outside the classroom experience and it's hard to put a dollar amount on that because it's really subjective to the student. But as we look at all these reports, it's it's really they're completely focused on finance and there's so much more to a campus than finance. I know finance is the make or break. And as for my right. campus, that was definitely the make or break. But I also have a lot of faith in the financial people who are running these institutions, including my president who was also the CFO at the time and making decisions that are going to be whatever they need to do to save the institution. They're going to turn over every rock and look around every corner before we have to come to decisions like our institutions did. Absolutely. Laura, I see you're back. 
any thoughts on the recent news from Moody's in terms of how many institutions they're expecting to close? Are there things about the reports that you see out there that either make your heart hurt or that you say you're missing the point? Is there a story that is underneath the surface of the story that we hear all the time? Yeah. Can you hear me now? Yeah, absolutely. Okay, great. Good. Well, I, 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 everything, I echo everything Eric said. I think that that's a really important piece of the equation. I also think that it's, it's really important to understand that you have to make, you have, things are not going to be the way they were, especially after COVID, right? And that we need to make, we need to be unafraid to make radical decisions, but you can continue to be the institution that you are. Continue to have the values, the culture of the institution and still make radical changes to really become more streamlined or more focused. And I think that's the mistake that a lot of institutions make, which is thinking, if we just change a few of these things, then that will change everything and we can continue down the road that we're planning on. And and the landscape is just so complicated now that you just have to be unafraid to really dig into who you are and what kind of institution you want to be, but also be unafraid to to move in the direction that you need to move with how things are changing and keep students at the center. Absolutely. Putting the students at the center, understanding who you are, what is your mission? Yeah. And why are you there is the the seminal and most important aspect of this. Yeah. Teachers are not your mission. Right. Uh, Exactly. Athletic programs are not your mission. There are certain Mm -hmm. aspects of this. You've got to stop nibbling around the edges. Like it's literally nibble, 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 nibble. And if I, I, I always say to people, because they always ask the question, well, how did it happen? And I'm like, Mm -hmm. well, it didn't just happen overnight. This was decades of decisions and decades of consequences to those decisions. And one of the biggest things that we had, and I see that one of my graduate students is here live in the audience. Hi, Sam. Nice to see you. I hope you're having a good summer. And um, one of the things that, that I, I say to folks all the time is that you got to kind of pay attention to things like, I don't know, deferred maintenance. Okay. Deferred maintenance is not sexy. It is not sexy at all. But when you have $40 million of deferred maintenance on a college mm-hmm. campus, you can't fix that overnight. And by the by, you're not going to be able to do a fundraiser with your alumni and say, help us fix the roofs and replace the, the, replace the boilers and blah, blah, blah. That's not really motivating. And they're not going right. to get into that. And that's not what this is all about. And this kind of idea that people are out there saying, oh, well, what we need to do is we need to rally the alums. Well, you know mm-hmm. what? That did work in a couple of places. But those are also a very specific institution with very specific types of alums. I don't know about your two institutions, but when I look at Mount Ida alums, they were in jobs. And I was just at a bridal shower this past summer with all of my students' alums were there. and They were talking to them and they're in jobs like preschool teacher, veterinary technologist. They are working for the state where they are counselors for kids who are high-risk kids who are this close to being in juvenile prison. They're, they're in the jobs that are not recruiting a lot of employees out of your top-tier institutions or even out of your flagship state institution. This is a whole segment of our workforce 
that it appears to me, and I, and I wonder if you think about your students at your two institutions, what kind of work were they going into? Because that's another concern I have that, that Moody's and others are not talking about is we have this whole band of the workforce that needs education, okay? But that is not the education they're going to be able to get at your flagship institution or at some of your larger, broader schools. And I also wonder, well, who the hell's going to do these jobs? Because they're not <laughs> going to get students who are coming out of your flagship or out of a very high-priced private institution to go into being a preschool teacher making bupkin, right? Do you, do you think about that with your students? Have, have I asked you a question that you haven't really, when you think about the institution and what your students were, were doing, what were they contributing in the workforce? And do you think that's going to have an impact on the community around you? And that's something I think that Moody's is missing. Eric or Laura, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I, I agree with you 100%. I hadn't thought about it quite as much from the workforce perspective as just the education perspective. And from Mount Ida, where you had so many first-gen students, I think people forget. And Moody's doesn't necessarily talk about how hard it was for students to get to college in the first place. And so then you'll think, well, they'll just transfer somewhere else. But for many students, they won't, right? And they will end up getting derailed from their education. And then, as you say, derailed from finishing their education and entering the workplace. And that we our closure has a huge impact on the Oakland community because we educated a lot of teachers, nurses, mental health professionals. So we had huge connections, placements in the Bay Area. So that's a that's a big loss to the to the local community, the the kind of pipeline of people providing real direct care and service to the Oakland community. So it's a really important question. And and I think Eric, I want to pivot a little bit and but keep it in the community mindset because you referred to something about this earlier. USA Today did a story about this earlier this year about how the closure of campus, I think it was in West Virginia, just destroyed the community around that. And that was a that was a decision by the state. So this was a state institution that they said, okay, and we're seeing this in a lot of states right now. Vermont's going to go through it. Pennsylvania is considering it where they're like, okay, which of the campuses can we consolidate and close and move? And Wisconsin just made a decision. No, we're not going to do this because that's not going to work. That's something that, that they made the decision. And now there's, there's a whole community that feels like not only that they don't have the opportunities they used to have and they don't have the, the thriving environment, they feel like higher education, not the state, higher education turns its back on the town. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. You're in a pretty rural part of the world, Eric. And, and I, I don't say that very often because I'm not in a rural part of the world. But how is that affecting? Because when Mount Ida closed, you can't throw a dead cat around here without hitting a college. So it wasn't a big deal to the community, okay, as much as I would have hoped it to be. But in your case, I could see that it being a very big deal. Tell us more about what you think this might be doing for your community. Yeah, it, it's a great big deal. I mean, Mount Pleasant's a community of around 9,000 people. And so you can imagine what percentage of the students that reflect the amount of the community is to that impact. The economic impact, I think I read, was about $70 million that the university provided for the area. And Southeast Iowa is not 
we don't have a lot of university options down there. We've got a community college that's, it was about 25 miles away from Iowa Wesleyan. And then we've got the University of Iowa, which is about 45 miles north. And that's pretty much it for the Southeast Iowa community. But our our students, not only just the financial impact, it's the the student teachers that will be able to support the, the schools. And it's the interns that will be able to support the businesses and the nurses who will be able to do their clinicals and all those pieces of of the campus that we were able to provide the community of support is is no longer going to be there. Financially, we've got a lot of small businesses in Mount Pleasant. I mean, they're locally owned businesses. They pride themselves on their downtown being primarily locally owned. And so a lot of our students were their employees. And so all these little pieces, it's just a domino effect of the businesses are going to take a little bit of a, of a hit because they don't know how to adapt to this that they weren't used to. They always relied on the university to support. And so that's, I'm, I'm, I'm sad to see that because Mount Pleasant's kind of the area where I was grew up. And so I'm familiar with it and I don't want to see the loss of the university have such a detrimental impact that it, you see businesses closing down and you see there's quite a few factories in that, in that part of Mount Pleasant that may consider taking their business to, to other locations because then it, the ripple effect. And so it really scares me to see what will happen in two to three years in that community because of the loss of the university. It, and it's, those are those things that in a time now where higher education and the trust in higher education is at an all-time low, when a college closes and it creates an economic development issue, a quality of life issue in the town, it, it does not make people believe in the promise of higher education anymore than, than it was pre, in a better state of affairs. We're coming up on the end of the show. And before I, I go into the final question for the two of you, I want to remind people that you're listening to Office Hours with Dr. DeVoe. This is our final show of season two. We will be back the week of September 11th. More information on that. Make sure you are subscribing to my Substack, What's Up in the Academy. And more information is on that. If you're listening to the replay, it will be in the show notes on how you can subscribe as well as Connect with me on all the social media platforms. But I, I want to ask the two of you as a final question is, how are you doing? I want the world to know, how are you doing? And I want to let you know, going into that, I don't ask that in a flippant way. I know that for, uh, for the year or two after Mount Ida closed, I'd go to a conference and People would look at me like I had a, a terminal disease and they would, oh, okay, like it was that. And I finally got to the point after therapy to be able to say, yes, my name is Laura DeVoe. I closed a college and there's a certain point where, you know, I, I think I said this to you, Laura, there was a point in Kathy Bates's acting repertoire where after the movie misery she really couldn't get any other roles other than this kind of specific type of woman and i felt like i was the kathy bates of higher education i was like cast in misery and i can never get out of it and it took a while for me to kind of find myself again and i had to make a real adjustment in who i saw myself as and I wanted to take control of my persona and not let the world have that control. 
But that, I didn't know I needed that until after therapy and after I, I kind of had an aha mm-hmm. moment associated with, with good friends and good conversations. But I want to know how you're doing. And Eric, I'm going to start with you and then we'll close with Laura. I'd, I mean, I, I think the best way to say it is it's still emotional for me, even though it's been a little bit of time. When, you, when you're kind of dealt a hand where you have no control, and in other times when you maybe done a job search and you could always return back to where you were at, but you're forced to kind of adjust, it really takes the control out of your hands and it's difficult. And you really assess, should I, what should I do? Or am I in the right field? And maybe you do a full readdressing of, of your professional life and say, maybe higher ed's not where I should be because it, it was not easy to go through a closure. And so I had those moments in, in assessing what, what's right for me. And I, like I mentioned, I had to figure out also living situation as well. So really for me, how I'm doing now is I was, I dove into the job search process very differently than normal. I did a lot more research on universities before applying for positions. I sought out some VP level positions, but in the back of my head, I was like, I don't know if I could ever do something like this again. And maybe VP is where I need to be. I need to be more hands-on deck and feet on the ground. And so I started applying again for residence life positions as well and was fortunate enough to, to find a position here in Texas and working at the University of the Incarnate Word as our director of housing, which I've worked in this area of Texas before. And But it's still not the same. Like I still miss going into the office and seeing my faces and my, my team and the camaraderie that we had and the who's bringing in the donuts today and who's decorating his office and those kind of things. And it's just one of those things that I, I don't feel I'll probably ever have again. And the great thing I say about a closure, which is probably the only great thing about a closure to me is that it really brought us together in a way that there was nothing I could have done as, as the BP that going through, we, we would have ever bonded as much as we did. Like it really did bring us and not just our division of student affairs, but just the campus in general as well we really kind of bonded over this tragic situation and, and became closer. And I'm fortunate that my, my crew and I, we still text often daily, frequently throughout the day. And it's been great to stay in touch with them and know that when they come, they're willing to come visit me in Texas. And I'm more than happy. I've got one out that just took a position in San Francisco. So we're all finding places to stay connected and and visit and I kind of feel like because of this traumatic experience of closure that we probably will want to do it more than it just when you transition Mm -hmm. job touch. I don't think we're going to lose touch. And so I kind of had to find a silver lining in this situation to say one good thing came out of this. It was the connection that I established with the team and the one that will stay for for a long time. Absolutely. Laura, what are you thinking? Tell the list. Yeah, no, that. That resonates with me too. I we the very last day of closure was this very, very sad and beautiful day at the same time because the team I had left, we all got out on the balcony of the chapel, which looks out over the San Francisco Bay and had a glass of wine and just had a good conversation about we'll never have a team like this again, but we can bring each of us with us wherever we go. That we're bringing that that connection and that family and that support together out into other institutions and kind of spread it around that way. So I was in a sort of unique situation where I was finishing my my doctorate at the same time that the institution was closing. And I've said many times that it sort of each helped me do the other, which is I'm not sure I could have 
made it through the closure in the same way if I hadn't had this really important thing to focus on. And I'm not sure I would have finished my doctorate if I hadn't had the closure because I had to sort of say, I need to focus on this and put this over here. So, so it was a pretty intense couple of months. And so I'm not sure I've totally had a chance to really. And then we also just, I didn't live on campus, but we just happened to need to move at the same time. So, so I'm not sure I've still totally processed all of it. I've decided to take an interim position for the next 10 months at, a, at an institution nearby with folks that I know because I felt like it would give me an opportunity to kind of, I share some of your thoughts, Eric, like, is this, do I want to keep doing this? And is this something that I, I can't go through this again. I feel certain of that. So it, it's giving me an opportunity to do good work and work with good people, but also kind of have a little breather and figure out what, what is it that I want to really want to do longer term? What do I want to do next? So, And to both of you, I think that it's so important to keep in mind that you need to put yourselves first, especially in the next year to two years where you're like, I'm just going to figure this out yeah. and I want to open up the opportunity that now that you're part of my network, anytime someone needs anything, I will be connecting with you all because we are part of a very special group of people that only can understand whether what this is about because we've had this lived experience. And I hope that both of you find a moment in the next very short-term future where you feel like you can exhale and say, I'm going to be okay. <laughs> and you're better for what you've done and what you've gone through. And to both of your points, you now know very deeply what a good colleague is. And so I will tell you this right now, you're going to be more exceptional at curating your next group of staff members than you've ever been before because you know what you need in, in any scenario. And Eric, we will be writing tabletop exercise on how to close a college because I don't think it's a bad idea. Yeah, so, agreed. That being said, I want to thank both of you, Eric. And Laura, please, thank you so much. You can find them both on LinkedIn. I'm sure that as we play the replay and I will put all their LinkedIn information in the in the show notes so you have that information as well as my information. But thank you all for being here. This is Office Hours with Dr. DeVoe. We are signing off for season two. Office Hours with Dr. DeVoe is a live audio broadcast aired and recorded on the Fireside platform. I am your host, Dr. Laura DeVoe. I thank you for listening. And a big shout out to Doug, who is literally my, my he is my ride or die on the show. He is here every single day. So thank you so much, Doug. And be sure to subscribe to my newsletter, What's Up in the Academy, the number one higher education newsletter on the Substack platform. Follow me here on Fireside, on Post, on Threads. Now I'm on everything. I will put all my stuff up in the link and please subscribe. And thank you for being here and being part of this audience. We are aired in replay on Apple Podcasts, Spotify Podcasts, and iHeartRadio Podcasts. And now get on out there and learn something, everybody. Have a great remainder of your summer. Bye-bye.